Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices. I'm Ilana Beitel, and I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security. And I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, and defense. In this episode of our series of Women in Leadership, we're very pleased to have with us Dubravka Schuitzer, Vice President of the European Commission, Commissioner for Democracy and Demography, Co-Chair of the Executive Board of the Conference of the Future of Europe. And with her, even equally, we're very happy to have Heather Graby, Director of the Open Society European Policy Institute in Brussels. Thank you both so much for joining us here today. It's a real pleasure to have you both. And perhaps we can start with the more obvious thing in a discussion on women in leadership, which is coming to Brussels for both of you. Commissioner, you came from Croatia. Heather, you came from the UK. How did you find the Brussels bubble as a woman having to deal in a position of power? A vice president, perhaps. So <laughs> I believe we have come a long way. First of all, I have to mention the first female president of the European Commission. So this is the first completely gender-balanced college in the Commission. And when we look at cabinets, we see that there women are equally represented. If I may refer to my own team, with a woman as deputy head of cabinet and with, with well over half the policy posts occupied by women. So I can see across Europe more and more women rising to senior posts or being uh, heads of state. Look at Finland, for example. So this is encouraging, but the work uh, hasn't been done yet. We still observe that senior management posts are male-dominated and that uh, reconciling family career still poses significant challenges, particularly to women. So I can see that society has advanced, but still sees women as the primary carer for children. Some are judged for wanting uh, family and a career, and this should not happen. So if I may refer to COVID-19, where women were on the front lines in many ways as care workers, often in the lower income scales, and at the same time, caring the family and caring for children or all the elderly family members. So during the tight lockdown, women worked double and triple shifts, homeschooling, home daycare, then, of course, tending uh, uh, to the requirements at work, which added to this pressure. So I want also to mention one more fact. Since I have been a long-lasting member of European Parliament and I was a member of a gender equality committee, and there was always, we were always talking about gender pay gap. So 60 years after the signature of the Treaty of Rome, which called for equality between the sexes, women still uh, learn only 72% of their male colleagues' salary in the same position for the same work. So this pay gap also nurtures the pension gap, and we see more women than men affected by old age poverty. And uh, I hope that Equal Pay Directive we proposed earlier this year in the College of Commission will bring about uh, much needed change. So, as I said at the beginning, we have uh, come already a long way, but we are not yet where we want to be, where I would like us to be. And I think we should continue working <laughs> on, on, on this. 
And when you came to Brussels, did you feel all of these disparities or were you immediately seeing yourself and being seen as equal to your male colleagues, do you think? Uh, I think in Brussels it's a little bit different atmosphere, so I couldn't say that I saw any difference. But, uh, of course, uh, looking on the ground, look, looking on the grassroots where I come from and uh, different uh, regions, uh, I see big differences and we have to continue working on it. No doubt. Heather, you actually do have two children at home. How has balancing your different responsibilities been in terms of coming to Brussels and living in the Brussels bubble? Well, I came to Brussels with a five-month-old baby in 2004 and then had my second daughter. She was born in Brussels. And my own experience was it was vastly easier to combine work and family responsibilities in Belgium than it had been in the UK. The lack of affordable childcare, the pressure in the housing market, which means you have to commute for a long time in London, it was much more difficult. Whereas in Brussels, the provision of pretty well universal high quality childcare and the fact that schools start at an early age really helps to balance the possibilities for men and women working in policy. And I noticed how many of my colleagues in the commission where I first worked when I came to Brussels really were sharing the responsibilities of childcare much more equally than I had seen in London in people working in policy. I mean, this is a bubble. It's one only one small part of society, but it's the one that I experienced. And I was really struck by how much also the sort of Nordic mentality, because I was working in a Finnish cabinet, also affected the EU institutions where there was an expectation that fathers would take a, a large part in their children's lives. And I found that very healthy as well. So on a personal basis, I was able to combine work and family in Brussels to to an extent that I would not have been able to do in the UK. But having said that, there are some very fundamental structural problems still in the policy world for women. When it comes to the whole family side of things, the fact that um, meetings are often organised at five o'clock in the afternoon or six o'clock in the afternoon, super unfriendly to families. But that's also for men. That's not only for women. But as Vice President Schuetzer was just saying, it more often falls on women than on men. And that's partly because of expectations. And just thinking about working life, I was struck by how much hierarchy matters in Brussels. Hierarchy is enormously important in the EU institutions. They're quite old-fashioned institutions in that respect. But that can be helpful to women. It can be harmful but also helpful because once women have got to a certain level of seniority, they can take the floor and they're less easily mansplained and less easily <laughs> crowded out of the conversation. So I think that's an encouraging thing and that's why I think things like gender balance in the commission, in the actual appointments at the top level, really matter, because then you can use hierarchy to the advantage of women. But where it counts against women, I think, is, of course, getting into that hierarchy in the first place, which can be very daunting, especially if, again, there's a period in, in a woman's career in which it's just very hard for her to be as present in her work as, as male colleagues if she's expected to do more of family responsibilities. Um, so it can cut both ways, the hierarchy thing. But on th I think on the whole, it's helpful. And the fact that there are more and more quotas in the EU institutions, and indeed we see it in, in NATO, there are more women appearing as well in the security institutions. I think on the whole, that's a good thing. But it does put pressure on all of the women who are involved in policy to perform extremely well, because we are there 
as representatives of, we're seen as representatives of all of women. And basically when we screw up, then we know that we are doing damage to the, to, to the, the cause of all of the women, particularly the younger ones who are still trying to get into that phase of yeah. their career. So it, it puts a lot of pressure. It means basically you're not given the benefit of the doubt as often as men are, I feel. And there's a pressure to kind of always do the right thing for the cause. And that can be quite tough at times. I think that's very, very true. But both of you have already raised so many issues which are quite fascinating with regard to women. And my main question to you, Vice President, is... How is the issue of women going to be reflected on the conference and the future of Europe? <laughs> so, as I, I'm saying uh, all this time, so conference of the future of Europe is taking care on gender, geography, sociological origin, age. So everything will be taken into consideration. So gender is very important and we will try to do it uh, gender balanced. But... There is a problem when we talk about uh, conference plenary because it comprises from national parliaments, European parliament, and then if the composition of national parliament is not uh, gender balanced, the composition of European parliament is not gender balanced, and then you cannot uh, have gender balanced uh, plenary. But regarding uh, European citizens' panels, there will be citizens, citizens who are randomly selected, then we will take special attention to uh, gender equality, which means one male, one female. And this will be definitely done within uh, citizens' panels. What we are doing, what is uh, our responsibility, will be done in accordance with gender parity. But uh, national, national parliament and in European parliament, you have elected representatives, elected MPs and MEPs, and we cannot influence uh, this fact. But, you know, absolutely. Fact, will you also raise issues related to women in the oh, conference? Definitely, we will raise an issue. And uh, I'm sure that uh, many women will do it. But also, I expect men to raise this issue, not always women uh, talking about women. So when you mention quotas, uh, Heather, this is also a very important issue, because I think quotas are also very important, although sometimes it may seem humiliating, but at the same time, I think that quotas are very important because it can help in those environments where we have a male-dominated world and where we, we can uh, try to foster a culture of gender balance. This is something which, which we, without them, we would not have half of women in leading positions as we have now in the Commission. But even then, women still often need to work harder and perform better than men. This is also linked uh, to fight the quota stigma and to prove that uh, women merit the position because of their competence, because of their hard work and because of their experience and not because they are only a woman. So women are very conscious of this fact and they tend uh, to assert themselves less while putting themselves under a lot of pressure to, to perform above expectations. <laughs> this is what we are doing. But I'm sure that uh, this topic will be one of the topics during the Conference of the Future of Europe. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But let's see what will citizens say. So we don't want to impose anything of citizens. So we'll let them speak whatever they want in order to see what are the problems, what are the ideas, what are the concerns of our uh, European citizens. This is the very idea of the conference for the future of Europe. Absolutely. Heather, do you have any ideas that you think should be there in the conference, both related to women and on other subjects? 
Yes, I think that the question of representation in the conference is, of course, important. And as as the vice president was just saying, the fact that men raise what have been thought of as women's issues as well is vital. And I'm very encouraged by the way that during COVID, there has been more and more talk about issues like, for example, work-life balance being something for both sexes. That's not a women's issue. That's about bringing up children, which is the responsibility of all parents, whatever their gender. So I think that's important. But it's also really important to recognise some of the enormous challenges for women that have been accentuated by the COVID crisis, the way that domestic violence has increased, the way that the gender imbalance in terms of household duties and taking care of the family, not just children, but also parents and everybody who's sick and so on, how that's fallen disproportionately on on women. And some of the latest surveys on that are, it's quite extraordinary, the massive discrepancy between how that burden has fallen on the genders. So I hope that those issues will get taken up because they are ones where the European European Union is actually in a good position to do something about them. One thing is to raise them in the public debate. The other one is to propose measures to address them. So, of course, there's the gender pay gap. That's one thing. But there's also the question of public services and how public services can help in countries like, for example, Italy, where it's women who bear the burden because the state does not take care of the elderly and and the sick in the way that, for example, happens in Sweden. So trying to address the disparities between different parts of Europe in terms of how the state helps families and helps people. That That's actually really important for women across the board. But then, of course, there are other issues, everything from domestic violence. Uh, famous example is, of course, the Istanbul Convention and the need for ratification by all of the member states, uh, an issue that the vice president knows very well from her own experience in Croatia's ratification, but also the way that the EU is responsible for fundamental rights, which includes gender balance, but it also includes the rights of children. It includes rule of law, all of which are beneficial and helpful to women. So actually reinforcing, I think if the Conference on the Future of Europe could reinforce the EU's role in defending and supporting and implementing measures on the values agenda, that would really make a big difference because that would allow the issues to be more than simply political talking points and actually to be things that result in legislation at national level, proper implementation and of course funding from the EU level. I think that's an excellent start, if I may put it that way, because I think each of those issues is absolutely so crucial. My recollection, I'm that old and I've been here that long, Um, if I go back to the Convention on the Future of Europe, one of the problems there was that basically it was seen as a huge political exercise. So it sticks in my mind a lunch I was at with three different deputy ambassadors of member states who were looking at their watches and saying, ah, yes, today's the NGO day. We'll let them have their say, and then we'll go in there tomorrow and make sure we correct it all. How do we make sure that doesn't happen this time? How do we make sure that this time it is about the people of Europe trying to get their words across to both their own politicians and to the EU? First of all, this conference is a citizen-centered conference. So Citizens are at the heart of this conference. This is what we want to achieve. So you used to say this is a listening exercise. We want to listen to their ideas, their 
hopes, to their concerns, to their fears. We want to reach out to each and every European, regardless of their position. So we also want to engage with those who usually don't engage with us, uh, also to those who are skeptical of European project. So we want to reach everyone, we symbolically say, from mountains to islands. So everyone is invited. And this podcast will also, uh, I hope, use uh, to inform people of the conference, of the importance of the conference. So we are working now on publicity, on communication. For us, uh, it is very important. So three DG comes from Commission, Parliament and Council are working to communicate this conference and to invite everyone on digital platform. There you can share all your ideas, you can organize your event, you can make a comment. This will be the hub, the heart of this conference. Then we will have citizens panels and then we will have conference plenaries for conclusions and executive board. But the most important issue is to make Europeans aware of this. So member states are very important. Without them, we cannot make this exercise a success because we need local authorities, we need regional authorities, we need national parliament. And above all, we need civil society, we need NGOs in order to uh, organize different events, events and everything will f- feed in the platform and then this feed into the citizens' panels and in the end, in the conclusions. And what is the difference from convention uh, you uh, mentioned? is now, first of all, that citizens will have feedback, but okay, fine, feedback, but what then? We should have follow-up. And this is the reason why we will end the next year in spring. And we need half of our mandate, second half of our mandate, to act accordingly, to transfer, to transpose these ideas to concrete politics. So we don't know what the outcome will be. We don't want to preempt anything. This is a very complex exercise, if I may say so. It will be very hard to uh, have all this together and then to analyze this. So artificial intelligence will be also there. It's not only human, but of course also humans. So we will try uh, to make this a real success and we want to uh, respond to citizens' needs because there is a gap between citizens and policymakers, if I may say, sometimes between Brussels bubble and citizens. We want to make this gap narrow. We want to come closer to them and to listen to them because the world has changed a lot. The politics is not any more business as usual. We have to change. We have to be changing ourselves. And this is the reason why we started this conference. We will start it on 9th of May, but we started this uh, digital platform on 19th of April. It's already very, very popular. So there are many, many different events on and different ideas. And But we have also to communicate it better. If I may uh, reveal one uh, secret, at the moment there are more male than, than female on the platform. So we want to uh, make this uh, known and to use this opportunity to invite all <laughs> women to take part to uh, draft together with us their future. So we want European citizens to see that they can be part of European uh, policy in the end. We want them to see that they can influence drafting European policy, even from local level from grassroots. This is the idea. If we work together, not uh, Commission for for itself, uh, Council for itself and the European Parliament for itself, we have uh, to work together with one voice. And I'm sure that this can uh, be a great success story because, we, as I said, we will have feedback uh, unlike uh, convention and we will have 
follow-up, which also Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who is the president of the commission, she also promised to do this. And uh, I will try to make this happen. Well, I think that's excellent. And I'm sure that Wise Brussels will want to be participating in that too. But Heather, how would a CIPE um, participate, do you think, in the convention at all? Or, uh, sorry, in the Conference on the Future of Europe? So I, I work at the Open Society European Policy Institute, OSEPI. We will be having a look at, at what happens. We're not investing a lot in it, I must say, because these kinds of exercises are inevitably rather unwieldy when you've got a lot of EU institutions involved, contracts are complicated, leadership is, is pretty big and multivariate. Um, and of course, only a small proportion of citizens inevitably can participate in an exercise exercise like this. And of course, they're not representative. But that can also be a strength, because it means that although this is not a conference where uh, it's, it's not an opinion poll, it's not an election, so it's not representative in that sense, only the motivated citizens will participate. But that means that those who really want to contribute will be there. And so it's important to take seriously the issues that they raise. And I hope very much the EU institutions won't dodge the difficult questions that citizens raise. A lot of people are very disappointed in uh, the weaknesses in governance at many areas, at many levels of, of government in Europe that have been revealed by the COVID crisis. They feel that um, the crisis has not been handled by many levels of governance. Um, you know, everything from EU-level procurement of vaccines to national government's responses um, to, to the crisis, um, social services support, healthcare systems, and so on. And that means that in this context, of, of a COVID emergency, new ideas and new uh, impetus will emerge. And it's very important that the Conference on the Future of Europe takes account of that. Plus, of course, it's given a big boost to digital means of engaging with citizens. And I think that's a very encouraging thing about the plans, the fact that these digital platforms have been developed a great deal more than was the case, certainly um, in the, the Conference on the Future of Europe so long ago, but also much more than has happened um, in national elections or indeed European Parliament elections. So I hope that um, in terms of the follow-up, um, that the, the EU institutions can pick up and promote uh, new digital means of engaging people um, and also new methods of doing democracy. You know, we, we still have a 19th century technology of elections once every four or five years, which isn't very well suited to um, the crisis mode that the EU finds itself in very often or to the long-term challenges of climate action, the need for climate action and changing to a digital society. And so I think um, having new methods of engaging with citizens through, for example, participatory democracy, citizens assemblies, that's something which the Conference on the Future of Europe could follow up with and encourage, because that doesn't only have to be done at national level. For a very long time in the EU, we've had this debate about what should be done at EU level and what should be done at national level. But in fact, um, now we see that citizens assemblies at city level or regional level could be very important in finding new solutions that citizens support on things like like renewable energy, for example. And there are great examples from Ireland, from Spain, from Poland, which I hope it will take up. So I'm not so um, encouraged by the setup of the Conference on the Future of Europe and recognising all of the institutional constraints to that. But I think if it can pick up some of these key trends and changes in the way that political debates are being and should be carried out in Europe, then it will make a really useful contribution to the future. I think that's a very uh, profound way of looking at it, there's no doubt. Um, if I President, 
one of the things that's going through all of this is the digital issue. And of course, um, I know it's part of your portfolio too, and it's very, very important, the whole issue of connectivity, but there's also the issue of digital poverty. And as part of, you know, how, who will have access to the convention, there is an average, I think about 25% of the population across the EU in some places, more in some places less, who don't have access to digital platforms and to connectivity. What is going to be done about that? So this is very interesting. Also, participatory, participatory democracy. If I may uh, refer to this, uh, uh, there are many uh, MPs and MEPs who are representative democracy, and they were not happy with such an uh, uh, exercise because they think that we, with this we are going to abolish representative democracy. But this is only to reinforce representative democracy and to help them uh, to listen better what do citizens have to say. Because only once in five years or only once in four years uh, to have their say is not enough, only once in elections. So we want to, uh, for, to fill this gap between two elections and have citizens there, uh, let citizens have their says. For us, this is very important. Regarding digital democracy, this is really a problem at the moment. You know that uh, we have a, a big uh, program which was started by a former commission, Juncker's commission. We have a program Wi-Fi for all which means Wi-Fi in every village of European Union. Since I'm working due to my demography portfolio, I'm and both demography, demography and democracy, I'm working on long-term uh, strategy for rural areas because we noticed that there is or there was a big divide between East and West Europe, but now there is even bigger divide uh, between rural and urban Europe. So we want to make these rural areas better equipped with all services, and this is what we are doing. When I say services, I don't think only waterways and the sewage systems and the roads, but broadband internet. So without broadband internet, the people will not be able to have different uh, services, but also not to participate on the platform of this uh, conference. For us, it is very important. We are working hard on it trying to make it better because uh, now during uh, this pandemic we saw it was not important it was, it was not important where do you live but how well are you connected <laughs> this is something which uh, we have to take into consideration so during this pandemic how equipped we are we are better than 25% i'm sure because uh, as you know there is a um, more than uh, uh, 50 or 60 percent people who work remotely. Whole Europe, depending on on, on uh, development in develop development in each member state, but we uh, we are uh, of course working on it. So digital uh, is uh, the most important tool nowadays. We are working on it. We are have uh, subsidies for this. You know that there is a recovery and resilience plan, and for next generation EU, a lot of money will be invested, uh, you might, might know, 20% of national plans will be invested in digital Europe and 37% in green Europe. So we, uh, we, we think about this and we are working on it. But of course, uh, for digital platform, uh, everybody will not be able, or especially older people, it may, they may live in urban areas, but they are not uh, educated well for digital tools. But 
they can take part in different NGOs, they can, they can organize events, they can uh, be invited by different civil society organizations. So they will also be part of this conference. Everybody has, uh, can find a, his or her way how to participate. So for us, this is very important. But as you know, we are preparing this Europe for next generation and uh, we are working with them. And this is the reason why young people will be included uh, uh, one fifth of the citizens panels will be comprised of young people from 16 to 25. Uh, so we think that this is key to make this conference a success and we cannot speak about future of Europe without including young people. So our younger generation is clearly the future but they are also present, they also live here and they are, they are also hit by this COVID you said that uh, women were hit uh, more, uh, were, were hit more, but young and old were not hit this in the same way. Women and men were not hit in the same way. So COVID, COVID really make uh, or made or is making at the moment uh, big differences. So, so we see young people as agents of change. And uh, you know that they are raising awareness on climate change, on human rights uh, violations, on racism. So they are very active at the moment. And uh, I think uh, they, they are very important. And if I may uh, say something on personal note, my time uh, as mayor of Dubrovnik, during that time, one of my most precious achievements happened when I established the Children's Council there. So this was the catalyst for kicking off a tradition of child participation in the city decision-making because we want to teach children from early childhood to be participants uh, of, uh, in democratic uh, processes and institutions. So I firmly continue uh, work on the importance of child participation. And we uh, are trying to raise active and engaged citizens. And to, this is the way how to strengthen our democracies. So we also adopted the European Union strategy of the child. This is also part of my portfolio. And uh, we consulted children between ages 11 and 18. And you wouldn't believe we have received over 10,000 contributions which fed uh, into this strategy. So this helped us to understand better the needs of children and of young people, of course. So uh, uh, we also invite young people to come to digital platform, as I said, because this is the space for everyone, of course, <laughs> who can use digital tools to engage and organize uh, their own events or whatever they wish. So this is really very broad. And if I may say, this is, um, it, I, it's not historic, but it's unprecedented. I don't know any democracy in the world which organized or has organized something similar. So this is really very open, very transparent, very inclusive. So this is, uh, I don't know, anyone organize something similar. This is very, uh, I think this is a brave endeavor from European institutions, but this is the way how we want to strengthen our democracy and how to make our de democracy fit for the future. We, we want to have it because it's not static. It, as I said, it evolves all the time. We are evolving, so we have to strengthen our democracy too. That's how I see this. Well, I think that's a, that's a very, very good vision. This is women in international security, so I suppose I, it behoves me to also note that for me, it's, it, it's, it's a wonderful initiative. One of the thoughts that immediately crosses my mind precisely because it is digital is how are we going to make sure the security side of it, how are we going to make sure that they, it won't be interfered with, that there won't be malicious intent to try and uh, pervert 
the various ideas that are coming across or to use it as a platform for those who um, are against democracy to to come across in um, areas like that. Heather, do you have any sense at all of, I know that you care very much about youth and climate change. Do you think that this could be a platform in which that could be debated? Almost certainly it will be. And I think that's very encouraging. But I think there is a significant risk, as you just said, Ilana, about disinformation in particular being spread through this, because inevitably, anytime you have an open platform where people don't have to prove their identities, and it's with the current technology, it's very difficult to, um, to have that. Uh, guaranteed. Uh, we don't yet have the, the kinds of safeguards that really would be needed to make sure that everybody participating is but participating as an ordinary citizen and that they're not some stooge for either outside in interference in the European Union or indeed for a small but very um, strident um, part of society uh, that, for example, doesn't believe in the values on which the European Union was founded. So it's, gonna, it's very difficult to do that. If you want to have an open and inclusive public debate, it's very difficult to balance that then also with sort of editorial control of content and of, of who's participating. Uh, it's, it's just incredibly difficult to do that now. So there are always dangers. Um, um, and that's why the moderation uh, needs to be very skillfully done. Moderation in digital terms as well as in, in human terms. So these are these are challenges that face democracy in the 21st century. And I think it's very good that the Conference on the Future of Europe is having to look at them across the whole continent, because if they are just addressed country by country, then it's much harder for member states to learn from one another. Uh, because, for example, the evidence has already been of Russian interference in the Italian election, in various uh, processes, also the, the last German election. It would be easy to dismiss some of that as being Italian-specific or German-specific factors. Whereas once you look across the member states and say, hey, actually, we need a way of managing the democratic debate in a way that is open and inclusive, but is not subject to manipulation where there are there are uh, limits on how much manipulation can happen, then this is an ideal opportunity to do that. Um, but it's tough because we don't have digital IDs yet. Um, the way in which people confirm their, uh, their identity, um, especially in anonymized form, which can be necessary as well, um, varies across the member states. And, and it just shows the need for the EU's digital agenda to address this side of it, and which is, which is happening. I mean, there, there are various measures at, at EU level, but the Conference on the Future of Europe will start to test those out. I think that's very, very true. Yes, Vice President. Maybe I can explain a little bit uh... Uh, yes, there will be moderation. Without moderation, there will be a complete chaos there. So, but we, as I said, we don't want to limit citizens. They can talk whatever they want. But at the same time, there is a charter. They should subscribe to this charter, whoever comes to platform. Without this, uh, it won't be possible. And uh, uh, they have to adhere to our common values. Uh, so this is sort of terms and conditions when you go to some other platform. So this is uh, definitely there. You can see it when you enter the platform, you will uh, immediately see this charter. And I think it won't be debate member state to member state, but you can interact all the time. And whatever you are interested in, you can see at, every, at any moment what is going on on the platform. This is uh, openness and this is transparency. And inclusiveness means that everyone can come on board, but of course, uh, if uh, she or he adheres to these common principles, which are called charter. We have four moderators at the moment on this platform who are looking after this, but of course, as I said also, uh, we, we are using help for artificial intelligence. 
uh, our joint research uh, center in the commission works on it. So we did uh, a good job with this platform. We have been working on it for eight months now. It's out and uh, uh, this is the moment to invite public uh, to come uh, to this platform and to express their ideas or to organize events or to comment. So there are three different ways how you can interact on this uh, digital platform, which, as I said, will be the hub because uh, living in these unprecedented times, we have to go digital. But this is good that we go digital too. <laughs> so there are always good and bad sides of the story. Absolutely. Well, this has been a truly wide-ranging discussion. Thank you both very, very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Dubravka Schuitzer, Vice President of the European Commission, and Heather Graby, Director of the Open Society European Policy Institute in Brussels. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to the Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations.